BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Melania, Melania, has anybody seen Melania? First lady, hasn't been seen in 19 days. People are starting to ask, where did she go after she left the hospital? What do you say? Hello, everybody. It is a big mystery here. Wednesday, May 30, and here we are. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome to it. Great to see you today. Thank you for climbing on board. The Bill Press bus as we head out from our studio on Capitol Hill to Washington, D.C. to meet up with you wherever you are in this great land of ours, whether you're watching on TV, listening on the radio, or catching us online on your desktop or your iPad or your iPhone or whatever. Welcome and uh, those of you joining us in the podcast later in the day, welcome, welcome to the Bill Press Show on a very, very busy day. Man, lots going on. Started off a little slow yesterday, but boy, we caught up yesterday. The big story, of course, Roseanne Barr getting the boot from ABC. Man, she was out of there in a New York second. Once those ugly tweets of hers uh, surfaced over the night, uh, Monday night into Tuesday morning, and ABC didn't waste any time doing the right thing. So we will bring you up to date on all the news of the day from here in Washington, around the country, around the globe, with your help and with your comments. Always welcome on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll catch up with your comments a little bit later. We jump into the big news of the day. But first... This Whoa. is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, I'm, I know you're a big fan of Snoop Dogg, rapper Snoop Dogg. I am, yeah. He's yeah. my favorite. One I've, of your favorites. So many of his albums. Well, back in 1994, <laughs> he had a big hit, Gin and Juice, which we all know and love. Well, over the weekend, he was performing at Bottle Rock Napa Valley Music Festival, and he decided he was going to set a Guinness World Record for the largest serving of gin and juice. Oh. 
He combined forces Whoa. with Top Chef winner Michael Voltaggio, uh -huh. and on stage, they made the biggest ever version of the cocktail. It was five feet tall, mm. held mm. 180 bottles of Hendrix gin, our gin, our favorite gin. Plus, they, uh, Whole Foods donated some juice that he could use, so he mixed oh it up on stage yeah, right. while he was performing at uh -huh. the Bottle Rock Napa Valley event. So, um, if you're thirsty, if you want to party with Snoop Dogg, just drink some of his gigantic gin and juice. Green, Green Hat is really my favorite gin. Green Hat is very good gin. Yeah. Green Hat is very, very good gin. But for those of you not in the Washington, D.C. area. You can only buy it in the Washington, D.C. Yeah. area, I believe. Right. Yeah. Uh, we go to San, we go to San Clemente, California, Bill. Many the times. Been house there. owned, formerly owned by Richard Nixon, yes. is going up for sale. The Western White House. The Western White House is indeed. Now it's on the market for sixty-three and a half million dollars. Three years ago, they tried to put it on the market before, and they were asking seventy-five million dollars. So they yeah. brought it down. Oh, I might, I might think about it. Now. It's a bargain now. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, the uh, former head of a pharmaceutical company bought the house back in the 1980s. He's the one putting it up on the market. So if you want to live like Richard Nixon, you can. Like I mentioned, it's San Clemente Island. It's five and a half acres, 450 feet of beachfront property. There's a two-bedroom guest house. There's multiple staff residences and offices, a greenhouse, a swimming pool, a tennis court formal gardens and large quote large expanses of lawn it's nine thousand and a helicopter pad and a helicopter pad yeah, yeah absolutely right. i mean the, to your point right like they did call this the western white house this is where he conducted business and he would walk on the beach in his, his three-piece suit. suit and his <laughs> wingtip shoes i, you know, I didn't even yeah. think about that that iconic yeah, those right. iconic photos of richard nixon frolicking on the beach in his no suits. hardly frolicking <laughs> yeah right. Uh -huh, right. happened right there outside you know house. i would buy that imagine the bodies that are buried in that house on that property literally and figuratively literally yes right <laughs> mm -mm, no way This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, Roseanne is gone. That's the good news. The bad news is we're still stuck with Donald Trump. He's just as bad as she is. Hey, what do you say, everybody? He's just things just as ugly. It is the Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome. Great to see you today. How about it? Man, what a busy day. Ooh, a lot going on today here on this. No, it's not Tuesday. We think it is because, you know, we started a day late this week. This is already the middle of the week. It is Wednesday, May 30, and welcome to the Bill Press Show. Booming out to you live coast to coast all around the globe from our studio right here on in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, just about six blocks from the United States Capitol, we can, uh, when they're in town, right, we can hear them from here. They can hear us from there. So we keep our eye on what's going on this end of Pennsylvania Avenue for all of you. And at the other end, uh, down at the White House as well, where President Trump leaving the White House yesterday to go down to Nashville for the ill-fated campaign of Marsha Blackburn. Mark my word, she will never be a United States senator. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us with lots to talk about. Larry Cohen joins us. Great lineup of guests. Larry Cohen joins us. He's the uh, co-chair or the chair of the board of uh, 
the Bernie Sanders uh, organization uh, coming out of his campaign, the Great Hour Revolution, headed by State Senator, former State Senator Nina Turner from Ohio. Larry will be here to tell us uh, what candidates they're supporting, who are the big pro- best progressive candidates around the country, and what's happening with the uh, Democratic National Committee's uh, planned um, revival, not revival so much as uh, uh, reforms that they're considering, like getting rid of superdelegates and all that good kind of stuff. Leah Askaranam from the firm Inside Elections will be here to walk us through the most important races of 2018 as well. And then from Daily Beast, Aswin Subsang will be here to tell us all the latest from the White House. As we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Once again, podcast, don't forget it, later in the day, podcast and subscribe once you go there. Uh, looking at you on Free Speech TV and on the radio statewide in Indiana, Indiana Talks, and all through the greater Chicago area on the great WCPT. Yes, it was action yesterday so fast on the Roseanne Barr thing. Ugly, ugly, ugly tweets. Roseanne tweeting out about... Um, uh, first of all, directing her tweets, the one that got the most attention, of course, was her ugly tweet about she did these overnight, Monday night, probably from her home in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, she starts out with a tweet about Valerie Jarrett, President Obama's former top aide, a businesswoman from Chicago, um, African-American. Uh, she also tweeted about Chelsea Clinton. She also tweeted about George Soros. But it was Valerie Jarrett's tweet that got the most attention and really got her fired, where she said that Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. Ugly, abhorrent, disgusting, racist. ABC saw that, and within hours, they called Roseanne Barr and said, your show, second season up, not going to do it. And by the way, um, huge, hugely success, a great move on the part of ABC and salute them for doing the right thing and cost them a lot of money and cost a lot of people their jobs. Some 200 people lost their jobs because of the show is gone now. That show made uh, ABC uh, about $45 million in his first year out of sponsors, hugely successful. Um, Donald Trump at one time said it was 18 million people watching in the beginning. It was about 25 million. Uh, toward the end. This year they expected to make some $60 million of it. Uh, but <coughs> uh, the head of uh, ABC, uh, who herself is an African-American, uh, I've, got to, I've got her quote here. Yes, She's, uh, she said, quote, Roseanne's Twitter statement, President uh, Channing Dungey, who's a, a head of ABC Entertainment, put out a statement saying, announcing that they were canceling the show, quote, Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and we have decided to cancel her show. <coughs> again, absolutely did the right thing. And again, you got to look at not just what she said about Valerie Jarrett. She came out with this old claim that Chelsea Clinton was married to George Soros's nephew, which has been totally debunked over and over and over again. And then this ugly thing about George Soros. Here's, here's a, a tweet about George Soros. Quote, 
Soros is a Nazi who turned in his fellow Jews to be murdered in German concentration camps and stole their wealth. Uh, again, something that's been circulating among extreme right-wingers for a long time, totally, totally debunked. Soros's uh, uh, um, office put out a statement yesterday saying, George Soros survived the Nazi occupation of Hungary as a 13-year-old child by going into hiding and assuming a false identity with the help of his father, who then managed to save his own family and help many other Jews survive the Holocaust. So it's just ugly, ugly stuff. But, you know, she's been doing that stuff and saying stuff like that, like, forever. So you got to wonder, why did ABC even bring her back in the first place? Uh, but they did, and it blew up in their face yesterday. And again, salute I salute them for, uh, for doing the right thing. Of course, some of... Uh, <clears throat> uh, the Trump, she was a big supporter, of course, Donald Trump. He called her, both, remember? Both in real life and on the show. In real life and on the show. Thank you, yes. And he called her and told her, you know, congratulated her, talked about her, one of his rallies. I'm surprised he didn't talk about her last night when he went down to Tennessee yeah. defending her. But some of the Trumpers were out there right away saying, oh, no, this is typical liberal media. You know, they don't believe in free speech. Yes, we do believe in free speech. She can say that crap. All she wants sure. from her house in Hawaii. She can go on her deck. She can go down in the streets of Honolulu and just spew that vile crap all over the place. She can tweet whatever she wants. Whatever she, she, she wants. If she wants to tweet it, she can. Doesn't mean ABC has to put her on the air to exactly. say it. Exactly. I mean, ABC's got every right to say we've got some standards, and this is this is does not meet our standards, does not meet the standards of American decency. But again, you know, the twist here is, yeah, she, she lost her job. Donald, we're still stuck with Donald Trump, who says things just as ugly every day in private and in public, on Twitter and at his rallies, and people just accept it as the new normal from a president of the United States. I, I, I was watching. Yeah. How, how much longer until Donald Trump tweets this morning that he thought that the oh. joke about Valerie Jarrett was funny? Yeah, but by the way, yeah. And Roseanne says, that was just a joke. A joke? <laughs> right. You joke? I mean, you say somebody is a child of the of an ape, right? An African American, and you say this is a joke. Oh, I'm sorry, she was offended by my joke. I noticed this morning on CNN she's blaming it on an ambient. Don't no. you hate when that happens? Don't you hate when you take a sleeping aid and you turn yeah, into a, a yeah. frothing racist? That's what happens to me. I take a sleeping pill, and then I get up all night and tweet all night. Yeah, ugly tweet things horribly all racist things. Long. I hate yeah. that. Right. So. Um, I just think it's a it's one rare case maybe these days of somebody standing up for decency, somebody standing up for civility, somebody standing up for just good kind of basic American values, and that's what I believe ABC did uh, yesterday. Speaking of Donald Trump, yeah, he went down to uh, to Nashville yesterday to stump for uh, Marsha Blackburn, uh, the extreme right winger who is running for U.S. Senate down there. Her Democratic opponent is Phil Bradenson, the former mayor of Nashville, former governor of Tennessee, well-beloved down there. Donald Trump taking the stage saying, oh, man, I love me some Nashville. Do we love Nashville? Do we love Tennessee? We love Tennessee. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
the crowd obviously loving him. They packed it with all the uh, the Trumpers down there. Marsha Blackburn, he said, she's going to be our next U.S. senator. She loves your state. She loves your country. She's going to win. Yeah. By the way, uh, uh, the polls show that Phil Bradenson has at least a five-point lead at this point on Marsha Blackburn. Not taking anything for granted. That could change, but he's a very, very well-beloved man down there. Donald Trump yesterday said, yeah, she's running against this guy. Uh, I never heard of him. I don't know who he is. Mm, yeah. People of Tennessee know who he, who he is. Yeah, exactly. Two-term governor, very, very popular. I think two-term mayor of Nashville, very, very popular. Phil Bradenson, very strong candidate, great man. Um, and uh, we all hope will be our next United States senator from Tennessee. In the crowd with the president were the two, two current senators from uh, Tennessee, uh, Lamar Alexander has been there a long time, and Bob Corker, who has, of course, uh, announced that he is retiring, and a somewhat critic of uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump, uh, which the crowd recognized. They didn't exactly get the same response. We're also very grateful to be joined by Senator Lamar Alexander. Lamar. And Senator Bob Corker. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Trump knew that was going to happen. Yeah, he was just sticking it to Corker there. That's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. Um, Someone let Rudy Giuliani into the room? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it sounded like the uh, Yankee Stadium <laughs> thing, didn't it? Right? Yeah, totally. Right. Uh, and Trump said some crazy things down there. First of all, he said Bradenson. Now he's running for Senate. But he said Bradenson will just do anything that Nancy Pelosi wants. Uh, let's see. No, she's head of the Democrat in the House, not in the Senate. Got a little mixed up. And then he turned around and said, well, she'll do anything that Nancy or Chuck Schumer, or he'll he'll do anything that Nancy or Chuck Schumer wanted to do. He also, of course, gets back on to, he said immigration is going to be the winning issue for Republicans uh, this year. And he comes back again and says, not only are MS-13 members, they're, they're animals, but Nancy Pelosi loves MS-13. The MS-13 lover, Nancy Pelosi. She loves MS-13, can you imagine? Remember? I said they're animals, and she said, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? Have you seen what they've done? Have you seen what they're doing to us, and we're taking them out of our country by the thousands. Oh, yeah, thousands. Thousands, thousands, thousands. By the thousands. By the way, I mean, you have to... He throws this stuff out there. Just take a moment to think about that. Yeah. That there are gang members, the MS-13 gang, which does not Mm. operate here, and we've thrown... Thousands of them out of the country. Thousands. There are not thousands there are of not, MS-13 no. gang members anywhere. No, there are not. There are not, and we have not thrown thousands of them out. And whatever, as bad as they are, uh, they are not animals. By the way, you might be interested to know too. Um, heartened to know, Donald Trump last night, among other things, he once again said uh, Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Trust me, he said Mexico is definitely going to pay for the wall. Uh, he comes. He dropped that for a long time. He came back to it. The president of Mexico immediately issued a statement saying, oh, yeah, the hell we are. Never, no way, no how, which, of course, they won't. 
Uh, Donald Trump also said, you might be surprised to learn, that opioid is uh, on its we're, we're, We've solved that problem, too. The numbers, he said, are way, way down. The New York Times reporting this morning that, according to the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, actually, they're not way down. 63,632 Americans died of drug overdoses last year, and 2,000 of them were from opioid uh, overdoses. Uh, so it just you, can't, you cannot believe a word he says. Uh, Donald Trump at his best or worst last night. Um, whoa, where do we go from here? Another politician uh, in trouble. We've been talking about him. The governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens, well, we didn't see how he, how he could ride out the scandal. Uh, and yesterday, uh, it proved that he was not able to. Remember, this is the, by, by the way, rising star in the Republican Party, former Navy SEAL, a duty in uh, uh, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, started this charity for veterans in, in Missouri and then runs for governor. Everybody said he's going to be president of the United States. Uh, the problem is, uh, like uh, <clears throat> a lot of other politicians, couldn't keep a zipper down, had this affair with his hairdresser, allegedly chained her to some exercise machines, took pictures of her nude or almost nude, and then threatened to release those pictures, according to her, uh, if she told anybody about their affair. He insisted yesterday this was all done, he said, to bring bring harm and to hurt his family, blaming it basically on the media for reporting this or for this woman for coming forth with her story. But he did announce yesterday, uh, here he is, as of Friday, he's out of there. I am announcing that I will resign as governor of Missouri, effective Friday, June 1st, at 5 p.m. And he still insists he didn't break any laws. People of good faith know that I am not perfect, but I have not broken any laws nor committed any offense worthy of this treatment. Uh, Yeah. Uh, coming across, trying to come across as a victim, saying, you know, this is terrible. These people are just trying to destroy me and my family. No, so it's dude. always great. To- no, dude, you did it, <laughs> and you are suffering the consequences. It's always great for these these always men who get in this trouble and yeah. then they resign and then they say, yeah, but I didn't do it, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I'm leaving, I'm resigning, but I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> like, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. Get out of here. Exactly. See you later, (laughs) dummy. All right. Uh, Puerto Rico's back in the news yesterday. Remember, um, of course, uh, after we we thought, you know, we we said at the time, um, FEMA did a great great job responding to the, uh, uh, under the direction of Donald Trump to the hurricanes in Texas and Louisiana and Florida. Not so good a job. When they got down to uh, Puerto Rico, in fact, the but the I mean, there are people still in Puerto Rico today that do not have drinking water. What is it? A year and a half? Uh, it's not quite a year. But not almost quite a year. A year. Yeah. Almost a year. Right. Um, and the the official government toll of people who died as a result of the hurricane in Puerto Rico was is still sixty four. That's what the government says. Sixty four. Yesterday, in fact, at the time. Donald Trump gave him a himself a, a grade on how well he did responding to the hurricane. 
In Texas and in Florida, we get an A-plus. And I'll tell you what, I think we've done just as good in Puerto Rico, and it's actually a much tougher situation. Uh, but now the roads are cleared, communication's starting to come back. We need their truck drivers. Their drivers have to start driving trucks. Okay, yeah, d- right. just, just, just A-plus, so you know. A-plus in Puerto Rico. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, he's tra- and, and the way that he says, you know, oh, the roads are starting to be clear, electricity's starting to come back on, that was in September of last year. Mm-hmm. That was nine months ago. Yeah, right. And they're still suffering that. And where are we now? And where are we now, right. Uh, Of course, you have to understand, Puerto Rico is an island, Peter, you know, surrounded by ocean, a lot of ocean. This is an island (laughs) surrounded by water, big water, Water, ocean water. Water, water, big water, big water, ocean water, water, water. All right. Uh, and Donald Trump went on to say that, you know what? Yeah, some people died, but it could have been a lot worse. What is your death count as of this moment? 17? 16 certified. 16 people certified. 16 people versus in the thousands. Uh, you can be very proud. Did you? F- yeah. Could have been in the thousands, he said. Well, that's the point. It was in the thousands. Uh, Harvard, uh, the government went for up from 1617 to 64 officially. That's where they were last year. That's where they still are today, the government of Puerto Rico. Uh, study by Harvard yesterday released. It went down there and actually talked to families and did the count. Uh, they say the official death count in Puerto Rico, actually their count is 4,645. That's a long way from 64, 4,645. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Disgusting. And for whatever reason, I mean, we know what reason, yeah, but like but, for whatever reason, the Trump administration and the White House <laughs> and Sarah Huckabee Sanders and everybody else that comes and talks about this, they're I mean, going to try and discredit that number. They're going to stick to their official number that they put out. And it's it's, it's like, why? Yeah. Why? You know, yeah, just admit the fact, right? Yeah. That they screwed up when it came. They weren't prepared when it came to Puerto Rico. And for a whole lot of reasons. It was not as easy to get trucks down there. It was not as easy to get supplies down there. Although, uh, we must admit that Chef Jose Andres managed to do so. Yeah. And open his kitchen open overnight and serving thousands and thousands of meals overnight when FEMA couldn't even get their first supplies down there. Uh, other news, yes, the on-again, off-again summit, all we can tell you today is um, we don't know. Yes, the top negotiator uh, is in New York to meet with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, we're told that there are preparations underway in Singapore uh, for the June 12 summit, which figured out, I think, was two weeks from yesterday. It's a lot of work to do right, to get yeah. ready for an international summit, but... Uh, they're calling it now the, quote, expected summit at the White House. So th- they're working toward that. We still don't know. We still Lowering don't know. expectations every day. Right. Still <laughs> don't know whether or not that's going to happen. Uh, one other quick point. Um, Donald Trump's talk, all the talk about the spy. He mentioned it again last night at this rally about the fact they sent a spy into his campaign. They had people infiltrating our campaign. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yes, indeed. Well, yesterday, Trey Gowdy, top Republican from South Carolina, 
former head of the House Oversight Committee, who went to that, as one of the top Republicans, went to that briefing last week by the Justice Department and the FBI into what really happened in the campaign. Uh, he told reporters yesterday he thought that the FBI did exactly what they should have done. He said if, if anybody said, how should the FBI have handled this situation, they did exactly what they should have done uh, in looking into the charges that some of the Trump campaign people were at the time colluding with Russians and the fact that the, his charge that they put a spy inside of his campaign, Gowdy says, is baloney. Just like Adam Schiff said that. So when, when do you think Donald Trump will uh, actually stop claiming of spy in his campaign? Never. Yeah, he's never going to do it. But also, no. I mean, uh, yes, good for Trey Gowdy. But also... Where's Paul Ryan? Oh, yeah. Where's Mitch oh, yeah. McConnell? Oh, yeah. no. Where's everybody else no. just saying, Amen. like, this has got to stop. This Amen. has got to stop. These are lies. This Absolutely. is not true. Right, right. This is not going to happen. You know, I just want to take a minute um, uh, to say a word about a um, person that I once met. I couldn't call him a really good friend, but a guy that I always admired in politics who passed away yesterday in Tucson. His name is Dick Tuck. Uh, died at the age of 94. He was one of the most colorful people ever involved in politics. He drove Richard Nixon crazy. Dick Tuck was the ultimate dirty trickster. Uh, he started when he was a student at the University of Santa Barbara, California in Santa Barbara. Uh, Nixon was running for governor, and Tuck appointed himself the Nixon chair uh, of the Santa Barbara campus. Of course, nobody. I mean, he was just, that's what, he did that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, he arranged for Nixon to come to the campus. He rented a hall that would hold 2,000 people and did no publicity for the event. Nixon showed up, <laughs> and 23 people were there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, Dick Tuck, at one point, Nixon was running, uh, I think maybe now for re-election as president or something, and he was in San Francisco's Chinatown, and there was some big issue that Nixon might have taken a $250,000 loan from Howard Hughes, notorious Howard Hughes. Uh, Dick Tuck arranged for some people to be to walk in back of Nixon carrying a big banner in Chinese writing. And, of course, none of the Nixon people knew what the sign said. But the sign said... <laughs> Nixon, what about the $250,000 loan? Oh, that's amazing. And they wa they're walking down the street until somebody in, in the crowd, I mean somebody in the, in the entourage who did know Chinese, told Nixon about what happened. And Nixon ran over and grabbed the banner and ripped it up in front of the TV cameras. He was so mad. I mean, the Tic Tuck was absolutely brilliant. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, another time, Nixon, when he was running for governor against Pat Brown, he um, was doing, did a, whist, a whistle stop tour, uh, and he's in the middle of his speech on the back of the train, and Dick Tuck got a train conductor's cap and put it on and waved to the engineer, and the engineer pulls out in the middle of Nixon giving a speech on the rear of the train. He's in the middle of his speech, <laughs> and the train pulls away, right? Uh, he, he did stuff like this, absolutely just classic. Uh, and I got to know him a little bit, and I loved listening to his stories. And again, my favorite, another one of my favorites is the morning after the um, the debate between Nixon and uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, the famous debate. Uh, Dick Tuck hired a woman wearing 
a Nixon button to walk up to him at an event the next day uh, and say, that's too bad, Sonny. I know that you got beat. She, she said to him, yeah, it's too bad, Sonny. I know you got beat by John F. Kennedy last night, but don't worry. You'll get him the next time. <laughs> Talk about throwing Nixon Damn. off his game. Uh, at any rate, uh, the late, great Dick Tuck um, passed away yesterday at the age of 94 down in uh, Arizona, one of the most colorful characters, certainly in California politics, if not politics in general. Larry Cohen joins us next from Our Revolution to find out what's going on with all those reforms we're waiting for from the DNC and what's going on on the progressive front in the 2018 uh, elections. Very, very, very important. So uh, stay tuned. We'll take a quick break. Right back with Larry Cohen from Our Revolution. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. So what do you say on a Wednesday, May 30? Hello, everybody. Welcome back here. It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C. And our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their uh, colorful and dynamic international president, the one and only Leo Girard, good friend of our guest, Larry Cohen. That's right. Oh, Leo, he's good. Love good Leo. Man. I love him. Uh, the United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. Thank you, Leo. Thank you, Steelworkers, uh, for your good work uh, and also for your support of the program. Yes, Larry Cohen, former president of the Communication Workers of America and a longtime supporter uh, of our show, now the uh, chairman of the board of the great Our Revolution, um, which uh, is kind of the, the continue, not the continuation, but it came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, to keep the progressive movement alive in this country and to support strong progressive candidates up and down the board uh, and across the board. Larry, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. Uh, Politico came out with a pretty damning article about our revolution a couple of of weeks ago saying, I don't know, you weren't able to get your stuff together and not raising money and not winning your races. It was pretty. What's the truth here? How's, How's the organization going? Well, Isaac should be ashamed. That article, the way he writes, it's his third hit piece on our revolution. He's also tried to take out the Working Families Party. Uh, this mm-hmm. is uh, contrived. It's journalism at its worst. And that's actually the main thing I would say. There's yeah. basically a totally not factual story. I was surprised to see it because my re- interactions and my <laughs> impressions yeah. and my experience with our revolution has been all very positive. Yeah, uh, well, it's three so- days after uh, we endorsed... Um, uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo's opponent, Cynthia Nixon. And just like Working Families Party, there's an organized uh, effort in New York State, uh, which goes right to the governor to stamp out opposition in every single way, to demand total allegiance, uh, well-documented stories about the pressure he put on labor unions, including mine, and then their reaction with the Working Families Party. It goes on and on. And it's part of a much bigger story. Uh, too many people are focused on uh, Democrats and Trump, and the reality is to motivate people in this country, particularly young people, you need a democratic, democratic party, uh, not this kind of anything but Trump goes. That is failing. That will continue to fail. Uh, and that's at the core of what our revolution is about, to try to inspire and convince, particularly younger people, uh, that um, that you can make a difference, that you can lead, to, you can create party reform, and you can create a democratic party that, fr- frankly, is not corrupt, 
particularly here on the East Coast and other states, uh, and one where uh, people can actually get involved as they would in any other organization. One of the things that, uh, since you raised the issue of New York, let's let's talk about New York. Uh, I thought one of the big lessons that Democrats learned after the 2016 campaign was that the DNC should not be taking sides in Democratic primaries. Um, I thought we had uh, an agreement that the DNC moving forward would not be taking sides in Democratic primaries, and yet... Um, chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, who's been here many times as a guest, endorses Mario Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon in the Democratic primary. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, sorry. Right. Should he have endorsed? Uh, I wouldn't have endorsed, and it certainly doesn't help build confidence. I will say that Tom has been um, championing the report from the Unity Reform Commission, where I spent a year and a half as the vice chair to change the party. So I was actually surprised that he did that. Uh, Frankly, more damaging are the two vice chairs from New York, uh, Michael Blake and Grace Mang, Congresswoman uh, Mang, um, who also did that, also endorsed uh, Andrew Cuomo. And and much worse than that is that uh, those two, Blake and Mang, have yet to get behind uh, letting unaffiliated voters, there's 3.6 million in New York, join the party in a reasonable way. Uh, The cutoff for unaffiliated is to join the party and vote in in the primary that's September 13th was last October 13th. It's not like that hasn't been introduced in the legislature. It's not like it wasn't introduced at the party convention where the Cuomo forces immediately had it tabled. So, you know, to Grace Mang and Michael Blake, I'd say, which side are you on, Uh, reform or the continued top-down corrupt party control that we see across New York, county after county? That was an issue in 2016. When it's a big issue there were so in 2016. Many, so many Bernie supporters could not vote in New York because the cutoff had been a year before. Six months before or in that whatever. case. Yeah. It was a federal so, primary where it's six months. Six months. And the yeah. real question is joining the party. So people focus on voting. The question is, is this a party that wants to have new members, that wants to reach out to the uh, almost one-third of the American electorate that is not party-affiliated because they're fed up with this kind of stuff? Or is this a party that just wants to have control by what they would call a base a base that's increasingly old and out of touch and can't win elections. Yeah. How, um, why did our revolution endorse Cynthia Nixon? Because our groups in New York asked for that endorsement overwhelmingly. Virtually every group, all our endorsements are by groups, uh, unlike um, and you have some how other many groups. groups around the country? It's about 600 that. groups. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's universal. And in fact, uh, it followed basically Working Families Party and every other progressive group because our process is slower. And uh, we're glad to join with working families and others there, not only supporting Cynthia Nixon, but fighting for reform in that state, uh, reform in the state Senate, where you have eight Democrats elected year after year who then vote with the Republicans. And then right at election time, they say, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. And of course, Cuomo blesses that. And they have prevented major reforms in New York State, including voting rights, uh, including uh, all kinds of aspects of economic justice. Where is the... um so where where should our attention be in 2018? What do you see are the key races for progressives? Uh, and, and are they at the state legislative level or the congressional level or the Senate level? Where's your focus? And, you know, there's so much going on. Yeah. How do people... Well, I mean, first of all, I would say to people that um, if you care about voting, you need to care about voting rights if you're progressive in the Democratic Party itself. And that is coming to a head on August 25th. And if the party doesn't step up and adopt the kind of proposals that came from 
the Unity Reform Commission, where I might say the Clinton folks had 10, we had eight, and Perez had three. It's not like it was a Bernie event, um, but very you know deep proposals about party change, because otherwise we end up candidate addicted. We don't care what the rules are, <clears throat> and then we worry about the candidates. Well, how do the candidates get in in the first place? Got it. So, uh, so on that point, I just want to back up a little bit so yeah. everybody remembers that this Reform Commission was created, correct me if I'm wrong, out of the Democratic Convention with all these issues of superdelegates, closed primaries and everything, and couldn't be resolved before the convention. So the agreement was we'll have this, move, this uh, committee moving forward. And Correct. you were co-chair. Yeah, right? I was the, yeah. appointed the, by Bernie as co-chair. Clinton appointed, uh, Secretary Clinton appointed the chair, who was excellent, I might add. Mm-hmm. And we, over a year and a half period, came up with 30 pages of proposed changes. And they were strong reforms. Yeah. Uh, and they, they so then they go now to the Rules Committee, correct? They went to the Rules Committee in January. Right. The Rules Committee has been, uh, we could say, discussing them, but I would also say um, gutting challenging them. them. <laughs> yeah, gutting would be a stronger word. Hopefully it won't <laughs> quite be that, but it could be. And uh, so... And before it gets voted on, the Rules Committee is, is okay. charged with shaping it up for a vote at the August 25th meeting. All right, and the Rules Committee meets next week. Rules Committee meets for the fifth time next uh Friday and Saturday in Providence, Rhode Island. So what's going to happen with superdelegates? It could end up with nothing happening. It could end up, as the convention mandated, with 60% reduction, which is what the Unity Reform Commission was charged with implementing. It could end up with no superdelegates voting, which would obviously be the best thing. But right now, I would have to say there's a growing chance that there'll be a stalemate and nothing could happen. So again, this is Democrats up in arms. (laughs) The convention unanimously said at least 60% of superdelegates would not vote on the first ballot for president. Right. Uh, many people said, well, none should vote on the first ballot, which I would agree with. And the real question is, what will happen on August 25th? And right now, I would say all three possibilities have an equal chance in terms of the outcome, which means the outcome could be if people let them let us, the DNC, go unwatched, the outcome could be that nothing changed at all. Unbelievable that the party would move into 2020 not having done anything about superdelegates. I mean, the, yeah, the, I, I, superdelegates I, or primary rules, you yeah, know, right. I know. So I was going to ask also about that closed primaries to yeah. me was another is another real problem. big, big I mean, issue. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me if the Democratic Party, as you point out, can attract new people, young people, people disaffected Democrats or or members of another party who suddenly yeah. there's a Democrat they want to get out and they vote for it and they can't because a bunch of rules that are meant to rules. have people control rather than build. Right. And that's what this is really about. So what the Unity Reform Commission said is, as you just said, uh, these East Coast states and states like mm-hmm. Illinois should join the West uh, and say that party and vote in a primary up until the day of the election itself. Right. Or early right. voting. In the states that have early voting up until the first day of early voting. Not a radical idea. That was the unanimous proposal from the 21 people on the commission. Now already, in the Rules Committee, that language is being watered down, uh, essentially to move towards voluntary state by state. Well, how has that worked in New yeah, York or right. even in Maryland? Yeah, right. No, I mean, and, and the message the party sends that way to me is just the very wrong message. That's we right. are a closed club. It's like a country club, Right. Yeah, it's like yeah. a country club, and what it does is it leads to candidates are totally on their own, and so they're raising money from wherever they can get it. The party adds less and less. Uh, it's the only democracy in the world where the party means almost nothing in many elections, 
And so then you get what you, what you asked me about before. Well, what's happening in federal elections? What's happening in federal elections is more money than ever. And even in the Democratic Party, more millionaires running. And of course, I would vote for them compared to any of their Republican challengers, but more multimillionaires running. They call it self-funders. And what happens to working class people in this country? Left out, alienated, and the alienation just builds. And then people wonder, well, why does Trump get appeal? Well, tr people like Trump get appeal uh, because people are so alienated, they don't think the political system is for them at all. Sure, they're looking for anybody who will shake up the yeah. system. And right? obviously, we don't agree with that, and we certainly yeah. don't agree with a single thing Trump stands for. But we need to build a party that's progressive, that's democratic with a small d, and where people can believe, particularly younger and new voters, get involved, join, and uh, you'll have a real voice here. Uh, and it's our revolution, ourrevolution.com. Um, That's it. Si sign up, become a member, and um, Carol and I are both. Anyone can join. Uh, yep. There's no dues. You can donate any amount you want or nothing. Uh, show up at an event. Uh, join a group. Start a group. Any 10 members can start a group. So uh, that's our revolution. Great to be with you as always. You know, it, it, it is. I love this idea of all these groups that pop up. Like I was talking to... Uh, uh, Nina Turner, Senator Turner, the, oh, yeah, the head of our revolution about this. That So like in some cities, there's more than one Our Revolution group, right? Yeah, and that can be messy. And in some, and in some states. Yeah, and yeah. that can be messy and that can cause some uh, well, conflict. Well, de democracy is messy. That's right. And movement building is definitely messy. And what we say is we'll accept messy as long as we can get more people involved and we can eventually figure out how we can row in the same direction. All right. So who are the candidates, progressive candidates, that you think that you're most excited about right now and the people ought to be watching? Yeah. Well, definitely right here, Ben Jealous running for governor. The primary is June uh, 26th. Maryland. Um, I'm sorry, Maryland, yes. Yeah, right. He has a good chance of winning. I would say it's a it's very close election. So folks who are from this area, uh, get involved, join Ben. Our revolution is very strong in Maryland. We have a statewide organization. So take Maryland as an example. Yeah. 200 different candidates endorsed by Our Revolution Maryland. Starts from the central committee of the party in each one of the counties where there's uh, candidates running for the party central committee. Goes to the state legislature, uh, House of Delegates and Senate. Um, congressional candidates like Raskin in uh, running mm -hmm. for re-election. He was endorsed uh, last year also, two years ago. Uh, Roger Mano running uh, in, West, in western Maryland. Um, and uh, in a primary against a self-funder. So, uh, but we could go state by state. There's well, candidates I like that. I come back. You said our revolution has endorsed 200 candidates in Maryland? Yeah, 200 candidates. Wow. And don't ask me to name more than about no. three of them, <laughs> maybe four of them. <laughs> no, but what impresses me, and, and also you started, the, so that starts at like the local. county committee level. Lowney county committee level. Yeah. And then state legislature. Well, also municipal. So Municip I don't know all this. Okay. But the county, county city. Yeah. And state legislature. Yeah. Why that focus? Because that's where, frankly, the corruption of big money doesn't make as much of a difference. In, in fact, you can absolutely organize and win at those lower at those levels. Right. Also, in Maryland, in three counties now, Montgomery County being the biggest, they actually have a small donor match. For every dollar you raise, the county puts in $6. So in the county council election... Uh, where, again, there's a bunch of endorsed candidates, although I don't remember their names, right. uh, running. They can run because of that match. Right. And that match is a key part of how do we reform this country. That can be done, by the way, despite the Supreme Court. This is the real way you can get at Citizens United. At the local, county, and even state level, uh, you, can, you can legislate a small donor match, and that then can mean that 
uh, we can have candidates that are like us. I, and also, this is how the Democratic Party builds a bench, right? Yeah. Well, it builds a bench and also governs. So if you take Somerville, yeah. Massachusetts, where we have 1,000 members in a town of 80,000, they've been able to elect their own people to be the controlling on the uh, or the majority of the town council and have now legislated things like uh, fair housing. And they're after realtors who, you know, are just interested in speculation, all kinds of things they can do. So people can actually be happier where they live. Imagine that, Bill, because they get involved in politics, not just people like us who are somewhat addicted to politics, but actually people who say, hey, I want to get involved because I can be involved. I can change my town. I can change Somerville or Cambridge, similar story. And then uh, my life for me and my family can actually be a better life right right here where I live. Right. (laughs) Uh, So what do you do in a situation like Pennsylvania 18? Yeah. Where our revolution did not endorse Connor Lamb, um, I guess because he wasn't progressive enough. No, the campaign didn't ask, honestly. So we only... um, so if the, you, the only endorsements we do were not like uh, the League of Women Voters with a Voters Guide. The yeah. only endorsements that we do, first of all, they have to be endorsed by a local group. And I don't know the story of the local groups there, there are, okay. or even whether there is one for sure in that district. Um, and then the local group can bring the endorsement nationally if they want a national endorsement. In many cases, it doesn't make any difference. It's all about the local group. But in that case, nothing was ever brought to the political committee, which, as you mentioned, Senator Turner heads up. Uh, I got it. Okay. So yeah. it wasn't a case where you thought no. he's not. No. And that this has been raised, by the way, uh, yeah, including no, I, that Politico article. We yeah. only endorse That's if why it's I brought you to us. It. That's why I asked you about And it, right. in most cases, uh, you know, obviously in most cases it's not brought because there's literally tens of thousands of elections. And including for Congress, in most cases, uh, there's no request. And if there's no request, there's not going to be a national endorsement. And again, the local endorsement, including in Maryland in those two congressional districts, means a lot more than the national endorsement. National endorsement does mean extra fundraising possibilities, extra volunteers. And so in a Stacey Abrams race where people will pile in, not just our group, but almost every progressive group from around the country, that can make a significant difference. Stacey, or Ben Jealous, Stacey right. Abrams, who just Stacey won the primary, Abrams, who just won the primary in, in, Georgia. in Georgia. Or definitely a Ben Jealous race where we've tried to get people excited about it across the country. But um, much more often, uh, it's really about the local group, are they growing? Are they signing people up? Are the people making phone calls and elections? Are they uh, doing personal texting? Uh, some cases, uh, like in Virginia in the House of Delegates, are they willing to knock on doors and make a difference in that sort of old-fashioned way? So it's really about can we get more people? Uh, you know, there's more than 4 million people that are supporters of our revolution. The question is getting them involved, getting more people to be supporters uh, by going to the website, uh, like you thankfully uh, mentioned, ourrevolution.com, easy to sign up, start a group, join a group, um, and build. It's about activity. It isn't really about this is what we think about um, Bill Press, who, of course, we love. <laughs> well, we thank you and love you back. But So um, I'm, I'm interested in whether you see, certainly there was so much energy, so much enthusiasm, so much excitement uh, in the Bernie Sanders campaign in yeah. 2016. And... Um, that was I, I hadn't seen that much excitement since uh, the anti-Vietnam War. Yeah, it's a long of, time. <laughs> long time, I know. Um, does that enthusiasm level continue? I mean, are people still excited? Are they still energized? Are they still getting out and they still want to make a difference? Yeah, I think there's tons of energy, some of it fueled by the negative of living under uh, the Donald Trump uh, White House and control of the Republican Party of, of the Congress. 
because some of it is fueled negatively by the things they do, and people realize, hey, if we don't organize, we'll never stop them. Uh, I think, truthfully, the energy to uh, create positive change has ebbed somewhat since the Trump inauguration. I think our challenge is to maintain it. Even at this level, it's enormous. Right. And to yeah. get people to believe, which goes back to the negatives like the reform of the Democratic Party, can we do it? Uh, the negatives like how the party operates in New York, and that, that gets to be yeah. widely known. So I think the challenge is people believing that if I put in X number of hours, I'm going to get out some kind of positive result. Can we encourage people that positive change is possible in this country despite big money, despite voter repression, uh, and all the other barriers we have to political change? Uh, it really does take a toll um, uh, compared to almost any other democracy that, that I know of. But I think, you know, we have to figure out what is our way through the maze of obstruction, really, that um, that we've inherited. And at our revolution, ourrevolution.com, people can find the list of all the candidates that you're supporting. Yeah, that's only the national candidates. So there might be 150 or so. Uh, again, more importantly, you join in the local or state group and you'll see what they're doing. Is there any um, U.S. Senate race that you feel particular that that our revolution is involved in that you think is really extremely well, important? Well, I think, in, yeah, in the U.S. Senate case, um, so uh, there are a bunch of candidates that are endorsed. Right. But I think mostly it's defense. It's trying to hold on to people that are there uh, because, obviously, if, if there's a way, which is very unlikely, to get to f uh, 51 Democratic senators, that would be a critical way to— to block uh, Trump. I think more realistically, uh, we're focused on can we flip the House mm -hmm. and where are the places, we're not going to make a difference in many of these races, no one organization will, but where are the places where we can make a difference? Can we elect candidates like Roger Mano in Western Maryland, who would be amazing? Can we elect candidates like Jess King in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania? Uh, really, there, there are dozens of those, um, and many of them still have primaries to go. And, and that's really where the focus of our groups will be. Uh, but, again, it'll also be state, state elections, uh, local and county elections. More realistically, that's where people can, can build, and that's where they can see that they can make a difference without big money. How involved is Senator Sanders in our revolution? So he's involved supporting our revolution. Um, legally, Senate ethics, he can't have any direct control or say in how it's run. And so the board is totally independent of him, uh, not connected to him. Uh, things like the political committee, which is a subset of the board, not connected to him. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, he supports our revolution. Uh, he's uh, done many joint events, like in Texas with Jim Hightower, who's on the board as a key leader. Our revolution, Texas, is similar to, Mar to Maryland, where it's organized statewide. Um, so has our revolution endorsed Beto O'Rourke? I, uh, you know, initially he didn't ask for it. I think practically speaking, yes, but um, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure of that. Just, I would say just, just that people are definitely that's... supporting him in, in Texas yeah. and um, including including our groups. Uh, initially, ironically, he didn't ask for the AFL-CIO support. He didn't ask for our revolution. Huh. I think he's changed his tune since the uh, primary. Right. Uh, Jeff Weaver, uh, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, campaign manager, is out with a new book. How Bernie won. He was in studio with us last week. Uh, since then, he gave an uh, interview the other day where he said, definitely, uh, he, he told us that that day too, same thing. Bernie should run in 2020, and uh, he thinks he's considering it. Go, Bernie, go. Um, where are you on that question? Is Bernie going to run in 2020, and should he? I, I think um, you know Bernie 
almost as well as I do, or maybe as well as I do for a long time. Bernie himself will decide that at the end of the day. Um, you know, we, obviously, we're encouraging Bernie to run. Um, our folks uh, definitely want to see Bernie run and that message be carried uh, forward. Um, and, you know, honestly, I don't see anybody else with the combined message that Bernie stands for. And um, when when Bernie, Bernie certainly has had an impact, right? And um, and it's not over yet. No, right? Bernie's impact's not over, whether it's Bernie or Biden. They're the same age. I think they both think they're going to have an impact going forward, whether they run for president or not. Uh, okay. Obviously, it's the Bernie well, message that we're carrying. All right. So the, the time is now, and the organization is Our Revolution, and you ought to get involved. It's OurRevolution.com, and Larry Cohen is leading the way. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for your great Appreciate work. Appreciate all the time here. Good luck in Providence. is the okay. Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from the Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Melania, where are you, Melania? We haven't seen her for 19 days. Whatever happened to the First Lady? Is she hiding out in New York? Big mystery in Washington. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Wednesday, May 30. And this is the Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always in our studio right here on Capitol Hill. With the news of the day, and there is a lot of it today, uh, probably the number one story, Roseanne Barr getting booted by ABC after some absolutely disgusting Twitter comments that she made overnight Monday. Uh, Tuesday morning, ABC saw them and said, this is not who we are. Uh, she may have made us a lot of money and be the centerpiece of our uh, new entertainment lineup, but we're not going to stand for that. And they fired her, yes, pulled the plug, canceled the show yesterday morning. But of course... <clears throat> Donald Trump, whom she imitates and tries to um, keep up with, is still on the job. We look forward to hearing from you and your comments on Twitter about the news of the day, at BP Show, uh, and joining us here to talk uh, everything politics in uh, 2018 from uh, the group Inside Elections, which tracks all the races, important races in this country, Leah Escarana. Hello, Leah. Nice to see you. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having thanks me. For, thanks for coming in. Look forward to catching up on... Uh, there's so much going on. It's, you, yeah, it's you a guys, busy You guys, you got year. this whole universe <laughs> that you got to track all the time. So. Yeah, there are uh, a few races that we're, we're a, tracking this year. A few, <laughs> just a few. Uh, we'll give you a chance to tell us all about them. And again, uh, as we go through them, any of the uh, issues that we've uh, talked about here so far today, send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. 
jump right into it with Leah. But first, this is Peter. the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, you're a Californian, so i got to ask you about this question. Yesterday, the California Department of Motor Vehicles said that they are teaming up with a digital license plate maker called Revivor Audio or Auto and they say what they're going to do is they're going to start selling digital license plates it allows drivers to register their cars electronically and give them the option to display custom messages on their car seems to be a solution to a problem that does not exist you could show personal messages on it when the car is not in motion and they cost not only do they cost $700 what? But you have to pay a monthly fee of about $7. The Department of Motor Vehicles in California says that this is just a way of keeping up with the future. Your thoughts? I think it's stupid. It's dumb, right? Yeah, but also very So are these, like, license plates going to be flashing messages so while you're driving along? So I mean, no, you're, you're not, very distracting. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that while you're driving. You can put personalized messages. You can flash messages like if you're in park, like if you, you know, at home or at the store or whatever, you could do that. No. But why would you want to do that? Vanity license plates are one thing, right? Sure. And people pay more for those vanity license plates. I never have. Yeah. But th- that that's distracting enough. No, I think this is... It's going to be a no for me, dog. No for me, too. While we're in California and while we're talking about motor vehicles, the Laguna Beach Police Department had a very interesting call Tuesday morning because there was a collision. A driver drove into a parked Laguna Beach Police Department vehicle. Mm. Here's the thing. It was another cop? No. No. It was a Tesla in autopilot mode. Yet again, another Tesla in Uh autopilot mode is involved in a crash. It happened yesterday morning in Laguna Beach. The officer was not in the cruiser of the time. There were uh, no injuries to the uh, the officer. The driver did suffer minor injuries but did not go to the hospital for them. So yet again, here we are. Tesla autopilot strikes again. So there was a... Driver in the car, but it was on autopilot. I exactly. Guess. There was a driver in the car, uh, but the problem that people are having when they put these things in autopilot mode is they think that the car will just completely drive on its own, and that apparently is not the case. You don't have to convince me not to get into one of these cars. <laughs> I'm already convinced. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Yep, the good news is Roseanne is gone. The bad news is Donald Trump is still here. They canceled her second season. When can we cancel his? Uh, Hopefully sometime before 2020. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is The Bill Press Show on a Wednesday. Wednesday, May 30. Great to see you today. Thank you for being part of the program as we boom out to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio right here on Capitol Hill with all the news of the day. And, of course, we are joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago and all the greater Chicago area, and on Free Speech TV, coast to coast. Thanks again for joining us and look forward to hearing from you and your comments on Twitter. Uh, at BP Show. 
The group Inside Elections keeps track of uh, state legislative races, congressional races, Senate races uh, in this country. Very, very busy this time of year. Uh, covering House, Senate, and gubernatorial elections. Don't forget those as well. Leah Ascaranum from uh, Inside Elections joining us in studio. Hi, Leah. It's good Hi, to Tom. see you. Good to see you, too. Um, so, God, where do we start? I, you know, there's not enough attention to governor's races, okay? What are the most important ones coming up this year? So the one that we're looking at right now most closely is in California because that is next week. Um, I mean, the primary, the, yeah, the primary coming up next week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we can expect that California will have a Democratic governor. Uh, but part of the reason that race has garnered so much attention is because uh, it's unclear whether there will be a Republican in the top two going into the November general election. California has a top two system where the top two candidates, regardless of party, uh, advance to the ballot in November. Right. And that would it's, help. It's uh, adopted since I've been in Washington, uh, still live in Cal- have a house in California, still vote in California. But when I was active in California politics as Democratic state chair, this did not exist. But now right. it's called, we call it the jungle primary. Yep. So the two who get the most votes in the primary of either party are on top of the ballot. And it could be two Democrats. It could be two Republicans. It could be a Republican and a Democrat. This year, as you point out, there are, by the way, I voted already for governor. There are 26 candidates for governor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. And it looks uh, likely uh, that we could have a Democrat and a Republican up there, though it's also possible to have two Democrats on the ballot in November. And the reason why strategists across the country are concerned about this is because uh, top of the ballot uh, candidates could drive turnout. So there's not going to be a major Republican Senate candidate uh, to drive out turnout in California. So if you have a Republican on the top of the ballot on the governor's race, what does that mean for House elections? What does that mean for turnout in Orange County seats, which is one of the more important places when we're talking about a Democratic majority? Right. Uh, So just having been out there uh, and talking to uh, a lot of the political reporters, uh, it, it it is so interesting. So... As you point out, the two, the top two Democrats, it looks like, are Gavin Newsom, lieutenant governor, and Antonio mm-hmm. Villaraigosa, former mm-hmm. mayor of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, John Chung and Delane Easton. But it looks like it would be those. They're, they're the in the polls, the top two Democrats. Mm-hmm. On the Republican side, uh, the leading Republican is a man by the name of John Cox. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, John Cox has an interesting background, right? Yeah, it's going to, I mean, I don't see how John Cox wins a, a the governorship. He does not. Of California. No. That's, I mean, he does not, he does not fit the states. No. Um, in fact, he's run several times statewide in Illinois, right? Right. right? And then right. couldn't win in Illinois, so he moved to California. Well, let's try it in California. So he's basically, he's a loser, okay? But- Trey, Donald, Donald, Trey Gowdy has, I'm sorry, not, Kevin Murphy. Mm-hmm. Kevin Murphy has convinced Donald Trump to support John Cox because they want John Cox on the ballot so that he can, Drive as you point out. out, encourage more Republicans to vote. If there's no Republican on the ballot, mm-hmm. 
then Republicans, they feel, are less likely to come out and vote for congressional candidates down the board, right? Yep. Uh, okay. Yeah, there was actually an article yesterday where Ron Brownstein at The Atlantic uh, talked to somebody who said there could be a three-point uh, kind of change in turnout depending on uh, mm. if there's a Republican at the at the top of the ballot or not, which three points could make a big difference in uh, districts in Orange County where sometimes it's a couple thousand votes that decides right. the congressman. So just to show you how complicated it's getting, that uh, so Republicans are doing everything they can to help John Cox, including Donald Trump, who's tweeted twice now about this guy, John Cox. Um, but Gavin Newsom would also like to see John Cox on the ballot yeah. because he feels that, and he's definitely going to be one of the one of the two. Yeah. Whoever. Right. Uh, the question is, will it be Antonio Villaraigosa, number two, or John Cox? Gavin Newsom obviously would rather have John Cox because he thinks he'd be easier to beat. He would be easier to beat. So yeah. some of his supporters are actually doing ads supporting John Cox to get him as a Republican on the ballot. Yeah. Which means that Gavin Newsom is now being attacked by some of the other Democrats saying all you're doing is helping the Republicans and, and helping the Republicans keep control of the Congress by encouraging voter turnout. I mean, it is... It's a it, it's a dangerous move. I mean, we've seen it before in uh, in 2012. Claire McCaskill um, aired ads to try to get, uh, I think, Todd Akin to be her opponent. And yeah. was super mm. excited because that would be, you know, the best candidate for a Democrat to face that year. And it worked. She won. Um, but this is a different kind of set of circumstances uh, instead of, you know, guaranteeing a Democratic win. It uh, could actually hurt Democrats down ballot. Meanwhile, uh, Antonio Rivergosa, former mayor of Los Angeles, um, both of the, both Newsom and, and Rivergosa are friends of mine, by the way. So is Delaney Easton, so is John Chung. Mm -hmm. I've already voted. And I'm not going to tell you which one I voted for. But Antonio so Antonio wants to be number two. He doesn't want John Cox, uh, obviously. So some of his supporters are running ads in support of some of the other Republicans running so that so that he knows he could beat them. Yep. To, so to, de to depress the John Cox vote in order to get him on the ballot against Gavin Newsom in the general election. It's uh, a total There's so mess. many. It's, it's not just Democrat versus Republican. It's Democrat versus Democrat. Democrats helping Republicans. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, and even in um, House races in California, we're seeing a few places where Democrats are really nervous that they are not going to have uh, a candidate make it to the top two in some what would be really competitive seats, um, especially a couple of the open seats uh, around Orange County, um, which is another reason why Tuesday is so important to uh, the the majority. I mean, if... Uh, Right now, Inside Elections is projecting that Democrats will pick up between 20 and 30 uh, seats in the House. Um, and so two seats in Orange County can be the difference between a majority and, and not quite cutting it. Overall, for governors, do you know how many governors are um, are up this year? And so we only have, what is it, 15 states have Democratic governors now? It's something, it's, a, it's low. It's yeah. something around there. Um, and I think this is a year where um, Democrats are excited about a handful of candidates, especially in, when you're talking about state elections. Um, but there are also a couple that are just going to be really hard to take down in Maryland. Um, Larry Hogan is going to be uh, a pretty formidable uh, opponent for a Democrat, even in a state that 
uh, Hillary Clinton performed so well in in 2016. Um, his favorability is still really high. Um, what Democrats will point to is Bob Ehrlich back in 2006, I believe, when he lost mm -hmm. re-election, Republican governor. He was still very popular yeah. when he lost. So uh, we're kind of looking at the national environment and a lot of these races and just about all of them and deciding if that is a stronger indicator of the majority than the individual incumbents. Uh, Larry Cohen, who is just here from Our Revolution, Our Revolution very strongly in, in, in support of Ben Jealous in the Democratic primary mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to take on Larry Hogan. But yeah. at one time we thought Larry Hogan would be just a one-term candidate, a one-term governor. But, right. Uh, He's done a pretty good balancing act um, trying to uh, appease some of the um, more conservative parts of Maryland um, along with, I mean, Maryland is full of resistance groups right. and the other state that um, that suddenly people are looking at as a possible pickup for Democrats, Georgia, with uh, Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams, yeah, and she, uh, I mean, she was in a primary with Stacey Evans, and I think either of them would have been real candidates. Yeah, um, and I strong think candidates, right? Exactly, and I think we'll have a better sense of what that race will look like after the Republican runoff. Um, you have two very kind of different types of Republicans running there. Um, it's an open governor's race? The, the governor's it is a, not... Yeah, it's an open governor's race. By the way, my biggest takeaway from that primary was how much she won by. Stacey Abrams just clobbered oh, yeah. uh, Stacey Evans. It was like 66 to 20-something. I mean, she just mm. destroyed. She mm -hmm. did, and she had national support from Emily's yeah. List. She had a robocall from Hillary Clinton. Um, I mean, she just had tons of support nationally, um, which, I mean, Stacey Evans just couldn't compete with that. Yeah. I think it was one case where, uh, if you will, the establishment and the progressive wings of the party came together behind her. Oh, you yeah. Know, and everybody was. Yeah. yeah. She had support from Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. Um, and she's been, you know, kind of involved with the party for years. So she's been, uh, Stacey Abrams had been establishing these connections for a while so that when this race came around, she was ready for it. All right. So how real is the challenge of Cynthia Nixon to Andrew Cuomo? Um, recent polling is showing not that competitive at this point. Um, I saw a poll a little while ago that just polled New York City and had Cynthia Nixon down um, by a pretty significant margin. Down? It, yeah. So even in New York City, even in where New York she City. has to win New York. I mean, exactly. she'd have to win New York City to win. Right. So, I mean, I think that you're seeing her push um, Cuomo to the left in a bunch of different areas. And for all we know, that could be, you know, the goal is to kind of get a more progressive agenda in New York. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's going to be a real uphill battle for her. And we're seeing a bunch of kind of candidates with major national profiles who it's just unclear if they're actually competitive or if they kind of have a, a cool story that's uh, getting a lot of national press. So, I mean, right now, Beto O'Rourke in, in Texas, uh, he's kind of proving um, a lot of people wrong because he is raising a lot of money and um, is waging what seems to be a, at least a credible uh, campaign, though it's it still seems unlikely. Um, and I mean, uh, Amy McGrath is also one example of a major national uh, kind of profile that also did well locally. So we're seeing a few of those as well. Uh, I mean, Amy McGrath in Kentucky sex in Kentucky. Yes. Um, I want to come back to so let's talk about some of the Senate races. You mentioned Beto O'Rourke in mm -hmm. the that uh, I must say 
I can't believe the national attention that he's getting. I mean, I just yeah. about every Democratic friend I talk to, they're excited about Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, and he's been out raising uh, Ted Cruz. He's uh, doing well. The, the challenge. I mean, is, a great candidate. Just got the right the right resume. Has the right a good profile. profile. Yeah. Um, charismatic. Uh, but Texas is a huge state, and Ted Cruz has nearly you know universal name ID, and you've probably already decided how you feel about Ted Cruz at this point. So if I have. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Ditto. Texans probably too. So if he's, uh, if, if I don't see tons of room for Cruz's numbers to go down at this point, just because people have already decided kind of if they like him or not. But Beto O'Rourke does have a major challenge ahead of him in getting his name out throughout the state of Texas. And if he's able to convince people to change their minds, and it looks like he might have the money to do that, uh, we'll be watching. All right. And another big race that people didn't think would even be at play this year is Tennessee, yeah. where Donald Trump went last night uh, and showering his praise on um, Republican candidate Marsha Blackburn. She loves your state. She loves your country. She's going to win. She's going to win. He says defiantly. He said that, of course, about Roy Moore. Um, and he also said last night, yeah, she's running against this guy named Phil. Somebody, Phil, I never heard of him. Uh, People in Tennessee have heard of him. I've heard of Phil Bradison. Yeah, yeah. They, they know Phil Bradison. He's uh was governor there. I mean, he's... Two terms governor. Two terms. He's, Mayor of Nashville. Yeah, people... Well-loved. People know who he is there. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean they all like him, but a lot of them do like him. <laughs> so uh, I think dismissing... Phil Bredesen as a nobody is, I don't see that being the winning strategy for Marsha Blackburn or for President Trump. What do your polls show in, in Tennessee? We've seen some pretty close polling there. Um, it's still early, uh, but given uh, Bredesen's past in the state, he has some name ID, so we can kind of start using those polls a little bit earlier than in other states, like with Beto O'Rourke, who might <laughs> not be as well known. Right. Um, and we're also seeing uh, Senator Corker uh, not coming out in like full-throated support of Marsha Blackburn. He said he'll support the Republican, but uh, he also said he won't uh, campaign against his friend, Phil Bredesen, who he said would be great at anything he puts his mind to, right. <laughs> including being senator. So that's going to be a, a tough thing for Marsha Blackburn to overcome. Uh, and it's pretty clear that the uh, Trumpers know where Bob Corker stands uh, in this uh, Senate race, uh, because last night um, the president noted that in the crowd were the two United States senators from Tennessee, sitting United States senator from Tennessee, um, and uh, they didn't exactly get the same reception from the crowd. Here's uh, here's their introduction. We're also very grateful to be joined by Senator Lamar Alexander. Lamar. And Senator Bob Corker. <laughs> you sure that wasn't Rudy Giuliani? Sounded like it, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a Yankees game. Yeah, uh, yeah at, at, Yankee, <laughs> at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> no, no, I mean, Corker obviously is retiring. Fairly independent, has been somewhat critical of Donald Trump. Not enough as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and he did say, as you just pointed out, that uh, he'd vote for Marsha Blackburn, but 
wasn't right. going to go out and campaign against and Phil Bredesen. That crowd was never going to be a, no. a support of Corker. Uh, I mean, it definitely illuminates the divides in the Republican Party. Um, but uh, I, it, that's going to be, I think, the Republican challenge in Tennessee is that the divides in the Republican Party are going to be magnified in a way that the divides in the Democratic Party will not be because Democrats are all going to show up to vote against the president, no right. matter, you know, ideological divides within the party. And every analysis I hear about the Senate, they, they say, OK, well, here, you know, the, the pickups. Now we have possible Tennessee pickups include Arizona and Nevada. Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, Arizona, I just consider Arizona so red that, be, but is there a possibility of winning a seat in Arizona? Oh, yeah. No, uh, Kristen Sinema, a congresswoman from Arizona, is running there. Um, Trump, for the, this is for uh, uh, Jeff Flake's seat. For Jeff Flake's seat, yeah. Um, and the the state is one of, you know, like Georgia, like Nevada, it's one of the states that's changing demographically. Um, and Democrats are hoping to put in their column in the next few years. You can even put Texas in that kind of group, but Texas will probably yeah. take a little while longer. Um, Trump carried the state, but not by an insurmountable margin. Uh, you'll see Democratic uh, enthusiasm in, you know, in the big cities there. Um, you have a major Hispanic community there. I, that's a, a major pickup opportunity for, for Democrats there. That's absolutely a race they can win. I'm not saying they definitely will win it. They right. still have to face Martha McSally or Kelly Ward or Joe Arpaio. Probably or Martha McSally. Probably, um, probably not Joe Arpaio. Right. Yeah. All right. uh, uh, but uh, it's going to be one of the more competitive Senate races. Uh, and you think Nevada is equally in play? Nevada, I think, or is the most so? in play. It's the only state where a Republican is defending a seat in a state that Trump carried. So I mean, sorry, that Hillary Clinton mm, carried. Mm, so mm. that is a Democrats' best opportunity by far. Um, I mean, in order to even get there, though, Democrats need to defend a whole bunch of seats. Right. And that's, I think, going to be an Who's even Who's the most vulnerable Democrat? I mean, there are a few. Sen I think, for Senate. Yeah, I think uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, uh, Claire McCaskill in Missouri is, is really vulnerable. Um, just by sheer numbers, Joe Manchin should be, considering Trump carried the state by like 40 points. Yeah. But, right. um, I mean, West Virginians have shown that they'll vote for an old school Democrat. Um, they did for, for governor um, a little while back. Um, and Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. Those are the, the four that are really hard to kind of imagine in 2018, a Democrat winning a statewide election there. But conditions are just kind of falling in Democrats' favor. We've seen what happened yesterday in Missouri with the governor yeah. resigning, which is not good news for the attorney general running for mm -hmm. Senate there. Um, Joe Manchin will run against the attorney general of West Virginia, who has some baggage as well. They're just conditions are, are working out pretty well for Democrats. We've talked before about how, you know, politics so much is obviously how you perform, but luck is a luck, big part of it. Luck, yeah. And buddy, nobody has been luckier than Claire McCaskill. Mm -hmm. nope. With Todd Aiken nope. and now Todd with Aiken, Eric Greitens, even though she's not running against Greitens, Greitens has definitely poisoned the well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Claire McCaskill is also, I mean, people from both sides of the aisle will tell you she's an incredibly skilled politician and a very lucky politician. So uh, Democrats put, put are that combination. Yep. Now, I heard you, so I'm going to circle back, because I heard you say earlier uh, that you are projecting Democrats pick up between 20 and 30 seats. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Well, that's a range. That, that's a pretty wide yeah. range. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be over 23 for them to, to, to be happy with the results, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, what are the chances it's going to be <clears throat> 24 or more? So I think it's just a little bit early to know for sure because the national environment is changing so rapidly and we don't know what the president's going to do later this afternoon, let alone later this year. Um, I think we'll get a sense. Um, I'm going to be looking at the Ohio 12 special election in August. Um, that could give us a better sense of how... Um, this is a special election for Congress? For Congress, okay. yes. Um, this is uh, T. Berry's seat in um, Ohio uh, who retired. Um, and it's another district where uh, President Trump carried the district by like maybe 10 points or so. Um, and we've been seeing Democratic swings in the double digits. So if that continues to happen in Ohio 12 in August, that would give me a better sense of whether we're going to continue to see the kinds of swings that we saw in special elections through the summer and into the fall. Um, but it can go either way at this point. I mean, Democrats are facing a bunch of really tough incumbents and some uh, uh, and a lot of money against them too. Right. I mean, there's the, the, uh, on some people believe that it's just it's a done deal already. I mean, Trump's so unpopular, and the Republicans have, have accomplished nothing in the Congress. Um, uh, that uh, that you know, and the Democrats only need twenty three, which right. sounds like a lot, and it is, but it's still historically, other you know, that party out of power has won a lot more seats than that. Right. There, there are a few caveats to that, though. First is that uh, not everybody associates President Trump with the Republican Party, so it's unclear if uh, usually in midterms uh, voters punish the president in power by voting their party right. out. But if yeah. people don't really see President Trump as a Republican, it's unclear yeah, whether that's going point. to happen. Sure. Um, and I mean, the national environment continuing to change, I think, is also something to to keep in mind. Um, it's just in 2016, we focused so much on the national political environment um, and paid attention less to state and uh, congressional district races. And I think that's something that we need to do better this year is instead of kind of looking at the national like distaste uh, for the president or, you know, for the Republican Party or for Congress in general, looking at these individual states and deciding, like, what does Montana think about the president? Because what Montana thinks about the president is much more important to the Senate majority than what the country as a whole thinks of President Trump. Yeah. And in these congressional races, a lot of them um there, like, like Pennsylvania 18, you know, mm -hmm. it, uh, it was with Connor Lamb and Rick Saccone. Rick Saccone, thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about Pennsylvania issues, not so much international or global or even national issues. Right. So each of these congressional elections is a is an event in, in and of itself. Right. right. And Republicans Where, are beginning to question whether using Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton as the boogeyman who will drive out turnout on the Republican side will work now that Democrats are no longer in control of Congress. So everyone's kind of being forced to talk about these local issues. Yeah, indeed. So many things. So how do people keep up with uh, Inside Elections? You, uh, InsideElections.com. Yeah. All right. And uh, they can follow us on Twitter at Inside Elections. At Inside Elections or InsideElections.com. There are just too many uh, for us to get through in a, in a half an hour <laughs> and too many 
kind of to keep up with unless you've got a good source like Inside Elections. So check it out, InsideElections.com. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for keeping track of us, Thanks of all those me. races, so we don't have to. Uh, <laughs> and we can lean on people people like you and your boss, Nathan. Nathan yeah, Gonzalez. Nathan Gonzalez. All right. So good to see you. Thanks good so much for coming too. in. Thank and you. And when we come back, Aswin Subsang here from the Daily Beast with the latest. Uh, Robert Mueller, it looks like, is lining up to make another big arrest in the Mueller investigation, uh, which, despite Donald Trump's uh, attempts to shut it down, continues to roll right along. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with us and Subsang here on the, this Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Here we go on uh, this Wednesday, May 30. Wrapping things up here on the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us today as we come to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. and brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees. President J. David Cox was here with us last week from the AFGE. The good men and women of the AFGE keep our federal agencies running day in and day out. Proud to get up and work for America every single day. Check out their website at afge.org. And a big welcome to our good friend Aswin Subsang here from the Daily Beast uh, with all the news uh, floating around the White House and beyond. Aswin, it's good to see you. Great to see you too. The big mystery today is... Where is Melania? It's been 19 days since she's been seen in public after this mm -hmm. nothing burger operation or medical procedure that they said uh, and uh, that was routine. But still, mm -hmm. she stayed in the hospital for a few, few days. But since then, no spotting of her, no word of her. What's going on? Well, uh, perhaps it's a little bit of column A. It's a little bit of column B. Column A being, you know, after any type of medical procedure, you know, uh, of that nature or surgery, you go want to take some time off. And column B being, this is sort of a continuation of the trend we've seen of First Lady Melania Trump, who has taken far more of a uh, less visible, shall we say, backseat role than other First Ladies uh, have in the recent past. And um, I think that trend is going to continue whether surgery or recent surgery is involved or not. I mean, this is someone who very clearly never wanted this kind of life in the public political eye as the uh, married woman and the first lady to the most powerful person on the face of the planet. So um, so I, I, I think we can expect the trend of yep. a missing or at least far <laughs> less visible than some might have expected Melania to continue. Right. So uh, there are reports that she may have gone back to New York, just hanging out in New York. Who knows? A couple of stories this morning asking that question. Well, so the again, Washington, D.C. is never the place she wanted to be her Exactly. Home. Right. And uh, yeah. some might argue the same for the current occupant of the Oval Office. <laughs> um, so, so it... Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what the First Lady and her Secret Service detail are right now, but it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, skip town. Right. Uh, and the other, the big story of the day, of course, is Roseanne Barr. Uh, ABC pulling the plug yesterday. It didn't take them long either once they saw the, particularly the tweet about uh, Valerie, Valerie Jarrett. Mm -hmm. uh, cost them a lot of money. Cost 200 people their jobs. But ABC said, this is not who we are. This is not who we stand for. Uh, uh, she's out of here. Hardly the first time that Roseanne Barr's gotten in trouble from her 
tweets, right? So right. Maybe and ABC also, knew what they were getting into when they brought her back in the first place. No, I absolutely like she has uh, made a bunch of statements, not just on Twitter but elsewhere, that certainly you would associate with the political fringe. Uh, she has a recorded, literally like on camera, recorded history of Bush did nine eleven stuff. Uh, she has dove into QAnon-type conspiracy theories, online conspiracy theories. She's done uh, some some of her own casual uh, Pizzagate musings, things that um, uh, certainly are very, very out there, if, if I'm to put it yeah. mildly, yeah. mixed in with a, a bunch of pro-Trump commentary. And again, this is um, Roseanne as the comedian and as the public figure. Um, now, I I wouldn't be incredibly shocked if after the Valerie Jarrett racism row blows over a little bit, if some other network picked up the show. Because the show did have a very loyal following, as, as the president noted when he specifically called Roseanne Barr to congratulate her. Right. The premiere of the show was um, was a hit. 18 million, I think, and yeah, I yeah, think millions, um, the audience had built up to about 25 by the, they expected, it, certainly and for the second season. Before we get back to Roseanne herself, I must say, as someone who actually um, watched the revival of Roseanne, um, and we can get back to Roseanne as a public figure, as we should, because I think when we talk about people who say or do outrageous things, uh, you, you, can, you can assess what they've produced, but also hold them accountable as influential pop cultural or political or politically inclined figures. Uh, I, I don't think the two need yeah. to clash with each other necessarily. Um, Agree. But the show, I thought, was very, very good. Uh, did you watch any of the no. revival? No. The, the funny thing is, if you actually watched it, instead of just following Roseanne Barr on Twitter, yeah. the show comes off as fairly left-wing. <laughs> no, seriously. Like... Really? Um, yeah. There was an episode where um, the teaser was Roseanne Barr thinks her neighbors who are Muslims who just moved in, Muslim immigrants, are building a bomb. Uh, I think that was the um, uh, the headline for the preview of the episode that caught people's attention. But spoiler alert, if you actually watch the show, by the end of it, Roseanne befriends the Muslim neighbors and sees the mother being treated very shabbily by a bigoted um, um, uh, cashier. Hmm. And she, uh, Roseanne's, the character, stands up to the woman and basically says, I want to speak to your manager. That woman is twice the woman you'll ever be. Um, like, and she's putting up with a lot of stuff right now that you... Well, you so, yeah. so the show yeah. was actually very politically nuanced. It showed left and right at the same dinner table. It had a bunch of comedians, actors who were liberal or on the left. Well, Wanda Sykes was one of the... Who, contributing who resigned, producers resigned immediately over right. uh, the the racist tweet from Roseanne, and right. so it had people like Sarah Gilbert and Norm Macdonald, people mm -hmm. who certainly would not self-identify as big Trump fans the way Roseanne does. So right. I think there was this unfortunate trend in cultural criticism, and I think one of them appeared in an article in the New York Times uh, several weeks ago, where they stated, "I'm a big fan of the show Roseanne, but because of Roseanne Barr's politics, I'm." essentially like boycotting her product, um, which I think if people actually took the time to watch the reboot, they'd see that it is not r real Roseanne Barr tweets. But at the same time, it's, as you point out, she is there. She was a star. She put out these tweets and ABC News just said, and I think they had to right. and do if they the want, right thing. If, they, if that was the business decision they want to make, I mean, 
I don't think that's quashing anybody's free speech or freedom of expression. Um, they, Roseanne Barr does not have a right to a TV show. I, I, I'm just saying my assessment of the show, I, I think it's far more politically nuanced than some people might have heard given the cacophony of coverage regarding Roseanne Person as the individual. Now, right. Roseanne Barr as the individual has said and tweeted some pretty nasty, pretty crazy, pretty racist things. And ABC decide to hold her accountable in their way. And we'll see if the second season of the reboot finds a new home. I thought it was interesting that Bob Iger, uh, you know, she was fired by the head of uh, ABC's uh, entertainment division. Bob Iger, the overall head of ABC, said there was only one thing to do yesterday. It was the right thing to do. And boom, we did it. And uh, I think people like Bob and others are catching some necessary flack in terms of people asking, okay, whether or not you think it was right for Roseanne and the crew to lose their show over this one racist tweet, if this is beyond the pale for you, why wasn't all this other stuff, a plethora of which was available to you before this new series was produced and given a home at ABC, why were those not beyond the pale? You know, like it, it, it seems... reminds me, right, so they kind of knew or should have known what they were getting in for. Mm-hmm. Years ago, just a little tangent here, when I was, um, and Pat Buchanan and I had our show on MSNBC, MS, MSNBC hired Michael Savage uh, to do a talk, a TV talk show. And mm-hmm. I remember at the time I told the president of MSNBC, you're making a big mistake. Don't give him a job because it won't before long. He will blow up. Uh, and I talk about that in my uh, new book, Bill Press from the Left, Life in the Crossfire. Uh, and Always I th- got to plug the book. Got to plug the Always. book. I thought it would take maybe, I told him six months, within six months. No, mm-hmm. it was like within a month. He, he told some caller... Why don't you go get AIDS? Oh, well, you're one of those homos. Why don't you Sodomite go get AIDS? Sodomize. Exactly. Why don't you go get AIDS and die or something like that or choke on the water? And, and they fired him. And I, I said, hey, I told you, you knew what you were getting, this guy. I Bad was, news. I was a pretty young kid when all that happened, when NB- MSNBC was in that incarnation. And that was sort of when I started to become more aware of national media and national politics. And Michael Savage based on exactly what you're talking about. I remember seeing clips of it when YouTube was young. Yeah. And he was one of my first introductions to the far-right fringe who had managed to actually worm his way into certain aspects of the American mainstream. He's a, he's a very interesting, thoroughly bigoted figure. Totally. And he's still out, he's still out there today. But again, uh, MSNBC should have known what was getting into it with him, and so ABC with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Roseanne Barr. Now, the last time you were in, we talked about leaks from the White House, right? Uh, They're still, and after the comment about John McCain, we don't care what he says because he's dying by Kelly Sadler. After that Mm -hmm. leaked, Donald Trump there says the president seems to be even in more of a campaign to get rid of the leakers, not to condemn what she said, but to get rid of the leakers and maybe clean house with a whole communications team. What's the latest you've been reporting on that? Well, are the uh, leaks still? Are the leakers still leaking? Uh, it's hemorrhaging, and <laughs> still yes, um, much to the benefit of uh, political reporters such as myself. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, we reported shortly after this was uh, the McCain comment uh, from Special Assistant to the President Kelly Sadler Kelly. was made public that the President had told those close to him and those in the White House that he would like 
leakers, at least one prominent leaker, um, conclusively identified within their ranks and for he, him or her to be made an example of and to be uh, sacked, gotten rid of, and made it known that this is why they're getting rid of. He called them into the Oval Office, right? Well, (laughs) and so he's talked about this uh, quite a bit since uh, the McCain comment broke. So the thing Lachlan, uh, my my colleague Lachlan Marquet, who covers the White House with me at the Daily Beast, reported um, a story we put up this morning, Shed some light on some At new details. com. Thank you so much. We for also work. plug. You know, we plug the book. We plug the website. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's very magnanimous <laughs> of go. you. Um, uh, well, to back up for a second, the, the thing we were going off of was on Sunday. Um, our good friend Jonathan Swan at the political mm-hmm. website Axios uh, broke the news about a meeting which you were mm-hmm. alluding to earlier. Uh, that President Trump convened with a small group of staffers in the Oval Office with them standing in front of him while he sat at the Resolute desk to talk about, among other things, the leaking problem within uh, the senior ranks of the White House and the West Wing. So he asked Kelly Sadler, who do you think are some of the worst leakers uh, in my administration? She named three people, and to the surprise of everybody in the room, and it was a small huddle of staffers, which included um, White House spokesman Raj Shah, Director of Strategic Communications, Mercedes Schlapp, and Chief of Staff John Kelly. Kelly Sadler turned to Mercedes Schlapp, who is her boss, her boss. Who, who, who stood up for her previously yeah, after yeah. the McCain comment leaked, and said, actually, to be perfectly honest, I think Mercy is one of the worst leakers in the White House. And this stunned everyone, including the President of the United States in the room, and, and it, it provoked... M- Mercedes Schlapp to just say, like, how could you say that? I would never betray the president like that. It's like, what the hell is going on? I'm paraphrasing only a little bit here. And then shortly after that, the meeting adjourned. And uh, something that was not reported in the Axios uh, story on this meeting, uh, something that Lachlan and I reported this morning at thedailybeast.com, was that shortly after the meeting adjourned, in multiple conversations with different people, Schlapp among other harsh terms, referred to uh, Sadler as a, and I quote, I can't say the word on the air. It rhymes with itch. It's a derogatory term. Rhymes with which. I think I know what you're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. Okay. I, I think yes. your listeners right. uh, do as well. And also, uh, subsequently, um, Mercedes Schlapp and White House Press Sec- Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders um, late last week convened a closed-door meeting to discuss discuss potential White House personnel changes. And as you can probably guess, Hmm. there was one name who rose pretty high to the top of the list, and that was Kelly Sadler. So, um, and I mean, other people we've spoken to who are both close to the president and also work within the West Wing just were still stunned with what Kelly Sadler did because not only was... uh, is Mercedes Schlapp her boss, and that takes some gall to do in front of the President of the United States in the Oval Office. But they, people, a lot of people were under the impression that Schlapp and Sadler were close, yeah. were friends, have right. known each other for a while. And this was considered uh, both it, by people who are sympathetic to Schlapp and those who are not as a hell of a betrayal on Kelly Sadler's part. Is there Are there still plans to... Either shut down or to clean, ha- totally clean house in the communications team to 
uh, it, in, in order as an effort to stop the leaks? Well, the leaking problem within the White House for this president goes far, far beyond the communications team. Because it starts with him. It starts with him, and it's pervasive through all the different communications, strategic, political, legislative, everything operations within Trump's West Wing. There's no shortage of leaking from those shops. So to pin it on, like, say, the comms office and make that yeah. the big only – well, that would be certainly be a red herring. Um, but you, I think we can expect to see some changes in the future. I mean, uh, I, I highly doubt it will be like a massive slaughter or clearing house. You might see some right. tweaks. And ultimately, the fundamental problem for this president and his administration will not change in terms of like how much people leak like like they're hemorrhaging information. Uh, and uh, I, I just want to say very quickly yeah. uh, what we were described in what Lachlan and I reported this morning um, what happened in the Oval Office in the meeting we were talking about and what happened after was yet another instance of Donald Trump's White House very closely resembling the reality TV that Donald Trump, the reality TV star, used to host years mm -hmm. ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and that oh, point, I, I've said that before, that that, that that program did not go away. He, he just moved it to 1600 Pennsylvania. Right, Avenue. where uh, the consequences are less Gary Busey losing a fake competition and things yeah. with um, international so, trade and potential nuclear warfare entered into the mix, you know, uh, minor yeah, uh, details. A little more serious consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but who's to say? Uh, I want to I want to jump to the issue of the Mueller investigation because, you know, the thing about this Mueller it it surfaces and then it then it disappears, and but it never really goes away. Um, so a couple of things. One is we learned today that Robert Mueller's now taking the first steps to arrest another, yet another person, uh, and file charge of maybe two of them: George Papadopoulos and this guy from California, whose name suddenly is, escapes me. But so the point is, Mueller hasn't gone away. Mueller's still on the job. Correct. Very much so. Correct. And um, I, I, I mean. Several of Trump's lawyers, some current, some former at this point, had been promising both the president and basically promising publicly in public um, on the record statements that, oh, this is we expect this or this will probably be done by this month or this month or this month. And ever since they started saying that months and months ago, the goalpost just keeps getting moved to different intervals of different months. And um at this point, it seems that Team Mueller definitely has more work to do. There can definitely be expected to be more um, fireworks and um, uh, heavy consequences, both legal and political, extracted from what's going on. But uh, I'd be remiss to say, if I did not say, that along with what uh, Mueller and his team of investigators and lawyers are doing, what... Trump and many of his closest allies, both within and without the administration, consider an equally, if not greater, threat to the Trump presidency, at least in the immediate term, is the federal investigation into Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's personal attorney, which is related but also uh, in many ways separate from uh, the Mueller probe. Right. And so when you have that dual track of potential legal jeopardy that could imperil not just those around Donald Trump, but Donald Trump himself, uh, they 
Don Trump and his armada of lawyers certainly have a lot to consider at this uh, at this juncture. Right. Now, the other thing that's come up as the front page uh, on the Washington Post and the New York Times today is uh, this: had, I don't think had been reported before that you know we know that Donald Trump was really pissed off at Jeff Sessions for recusing himself from the Russian investigation, mm-hmm. and he publicly said, you know, big mistake, shouldn't have done that. But what's what we've learned that's new in this is that Jeff so Jeff Sessions goes down shortly after this to Mar-a-Lago because he has to talk to Donald Trump about something Mar-a-Lago, and and at, at at Mar-a-Lago the president didn't want to talk to Sessions about anything else he wanted to really again jump on him for this recusal and pressured him to change his mind and go back to putting himself in charge of the investigation mm-hmm. said you made a mistake Undo it. Tell people you change your mind. You're going to still be in charge, which Sessions refused to do. My question to you is, and apparently now Mueller is investigating this as possible obstruction of justice. Again, because if that's not obstruction of justice, what is? He was saying, I want you to go back here because I need somebody that I can trust who's my friend who's going to be in charge of this to shut it down. And it doesn't go anywhere. Well. Uh, That's beyond damning stuff, wouldn't you agree? Oh, well, before we get to the uh, uh, potential obstruction of justice matter yeah, in okay. just a moment, um, I, uh, what what you just uh, summarized, which was reported in, uh, in the New York Times, yeah, um, sort of gets at the heart of something that is incredibly quintessentially Donald Trump. He has a in- very hard time letting things go, whether they're on a large political scale or something that has to do with a petty field, f- sorry, feud going mm-hmm. back with some celebrity going back decades. And we can get yeah, uh, lots, that. Of, lots of examples. Of so that, right. it's even though the situation is way more high stakes here, it, it really does just get at a pattern of Donald Trump's personal and private conduct where he just cannot let anything go, which is why he publicly and privately lashes out at Jeff Sessions r- all the time. Yeah. All the time. Even He's, this past weekend, he was at it again. Yeah. Right. He's his attorney general who is very effectively implementing Trump's brutal immigration policies and actually being, whether you think the policies are devastating or grotesque or not, being very effective um, in a way that other top officials are not in implementing what the president wants. And yet he can't stop going after this guy because he cannot let the recusal thing go. And now um, this is hardly the only thing that uh, Mueller and his team are intensely examining when it comes to their Trump obstruction of justice probe. So um, it, it, it's, it's just the latest bombshell that has been revealed. And, and, and look, we'll see what stems from it, right. from it in terms of if there are any legal consequences from it who's to say i mean we'll see but 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 as several people have said you know it looks like the obstruction of the the dual track collusion and obstruction of justice that Mueller is investigating they're also looking into things that have to do with uh, trump's business empire this is like a multifaceted investigation and as people repeatedly say uh, the Ken Starr inquiries during the Clinton years did not start over oral sex in the Oval Office. Like, um, I think it's a mistake for any of us to pretend where we to pretend we know where this uh, investigation will ultimately end up. 
Do um, you mentioned Michael Cohen? Uh, just about out of time, but real quickly, Michael Cohen had a big book plan that uh, you've reported on. That uh, mm-hmm. uh, last week, my colleague um, reporter Max Tanny and I uh, we we um, broke a little bit of news about Michael Cohen that the latest victim of his ongoing legal woes, as he's under the uh, um, really hot spotlight from federal investigators, is he had to kill his own book. <laughs> He, oh, had, he had a book proposal he had a book that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was called the uh, quote-unquote Trump Revolution, and it was going to include details, among other things, according to his book proposal, which, which my colleague had months ago obtained exclusively for the Daily Beast, that um, it was going to include uh, juicy details about his role in the Stormy Daniels saga and <laughs> uh, details about his view about well, um, the, the Russia investigations. And uh, so what... The news we broke is that Michael Cohen killed his own book uh, with his ongoing legal woes. <laughs> and it, and any lawyer will tell you, and I don't know if this is what his lawyer told him, that it is not t- the right time to write this type of book. Uh, no. Save it for the U.S. Attorney's Office and your testimony in front of the judge. Uh, Aswin Subsan, great to see you. Daily Beast, dailybeast.com. Thanks for coming in. Have a great day, folks. This see you next time. This is The Bill Press Show.